0: I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. And that's where we're going to look this evening. A couple years ago, I found myself with a problem on my hands. So when when Samantha and I had bought our first house, you know, we uh, bought a house that we could afford. And obviously it was a little older and we knew that there could potentially be some issues with it. And after we had been in the house for about two years, we noticed that anytime time we'd go in the kitchen, we'd just get this funky smell. So we're starting to think, like, man, could this be, you know, something with the dishwasher or something with the drain or the sink? And, and we just, for weeks, tried to figure out, tried to self-diagnose, you know, trying to do whatever we could to solve this problem. Well, it wasn't going away. And so I, I was talking with somebody, and they, they finally came over and, and were smelling around the house. And they were like, you know what this smells like? This smells like sewage gases like, oh, great. That's just great. So what had happened was when you have modern plumbing, you have to have a vent pipe that takes all the gases out of the house. Well, our vent pipe, which went straight up through the kitchen behind the cabinets, was made out of galvanized steel. And the house, being 60 years old, that pipe had been there for a while. And what ended up happening is where one of the pipes was screwed into a fitting, it had all rusted out. And so it was just resting on top of that fitting, and it was just letting those gases escape into our kitchen. And it stunk the high heaven. And so one of these days, I, I just worked up enough courage to start taking things apart. And so I took a cabinet off of the kitchen wall, and that's, that's intimidating because I know a little bit about construction and how to do all those types of things, but you mess up your cabinets, this can be an expensive venture. And so I cut a hole in the drywall, and I find the little spot, I'm like, well, I have no idea how I'm going to fix this, right? So I'm trying everything I can to, to try and seal up this hole, to try and patch it or, or replace it or whatever. I'm up in the attic. I'm trying to, like, look down where the pipe comes up. And nothing, I just, I don't have an answer. And I, I got to the point where I realized I am above my pay grade. Or this is above my pay grade, rather. And I needed help. And I, I took a, a long thought and person popped into my mind. It was, a, it was a member of the church at the time, and I called that person up, and I said, hey, I've got an issue, and I explained the whole thing, and they say, you know what? In about an hour, I can be over there, and I can help you out, and before the end of the, end of the day, we had it fixed. We had the cabinet back on the wall, and everything looked just like it was new, but it took that, that moment of me realizing that I am no longer able to do this myself. I I cannot resolve this situation on my own. I need the help of somebody else. And I thought about that story as I was reading this story. And I want us to look at the very beginning of Mark chapter 2. I believe Josh read this as the call to worship because the call to worship passage is incorrect. So I do want to look at that passage here in a few minutes. But look with me. Let's read it one more time. Mark chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And as I read this story, thinking about this paralytic man, he was in a position where he realized... ...at some point that he could not do anything to fix his problem. Now, there were some uh, things that people believed in Bible times... ...that could heal you, right? We've got the story in John where you've got the man who is uh, an invalid, right? He goes to the temple when the, uh, the pool is stirred up... ...and he tries to uh, get in the, the pool when it's stirred up... ...because people believed that that would heal you... ...or that had some special ability to heal you. And, of course, it didn't, it didn't but Jesus healed that man... Uh, And so there were some things that people believed as a way that they could heal themselves. But this man had gotten to the place where he realized there was nothing he could do. Now, if we look back to Mark chapter 1, just real briefly. At the beginning of Jesus' gospel, the first thing that Mark records that he does after starting his ministry... ...is he casts out an unclean spirit. And look with me down at verse... um, This is chapter 1, verse 27... They were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And verse twenty-eight says, And all at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And so even in Jesus' first casting out of a demon, people the word is spreading. People are hearing about what Jesus has done and what he is capable of doing, and word starts to spread. And because of that, we start to see crowds gathering, which is what we see here in chapter 2. The first uh, part of the story tells us that it was reported that he was at home. And verse 2 says, and many were gathered together. One of the things that you'll notice in Mark's gospel, if you read through the first 10 or so chapters, you will see about approximately 40 references to crowds. There are 28 times where the word crowd is used, one time where the word crowds is used, and then a bunch of times where you've got instances like this where it says many were gathered, right, referring to a crowd. Now, in all of those instances, not once does Mark speak of a crowd turning and and believing in Jesus or coming to faith in Jesus. He talks about individuals coming to faith in Jesus, but almost always when Mark refers to crowds, the crowds end up being uh, a hindrance to someone who's coming to Jesus. So now I want us to turn to Mark chapter 10, not Matthew 10, and I want us to read our call to worship passage. So the verses are right, verses 46 through 52, but this is Mark 10, not Matthew 10. And here's another example of this. I want you all to see this. So Mark chapter 10, verses 46 and following. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd. There's the crowd. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now look at what the crowd does. And many rebuked him telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up, and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight, And followed him on the way. And so, what we see in that example as well is you've got these crowds that are following Jesus, and Bartimaeus realizes as a blind man that his only hope to regain his sight, his only hope for healing, is Jesus of Nazareth. And so, when he hears that Jesus is passing by, he is not going to allow the crowd to hinder his opportunity to talk to Jesus. And so, he cries out. And even though they tell him, Hey, Bartimaeus, quiet down, you're embarrassing everybody. He cries out all the more. So crowds play a big role in Mark's gospel. And we see that here when Jesus is at this house. So verse 2 says, many were gathered there so that there was no more room, not even at the door. Now, these houses would be a lot different from what you and I are familiar with as the houses that we live in. Okay. They are much smaller in size, and one of the things that we're going to talk about here in just a second is the roof of the house. And so these houses would have been uh, typically one story. They would have a couple rooms in them, and they would have stairs on the outside that would lead up to the roof. And the roof would be a place where you could go and you could escape from the house. You could get some fresh air. And it was almost like a deck. It would be a flat roof and it was made of sticks and twigs and mud and all that stuff caked together. Uh, and it would be a hardened surface baked by the sun. And you could go up there and hang out and have conversations. But uh, as you know, anything made with sticks and twigs and mud and all that does not last for a very long time. And it would have to regularly be, uh, be fixed and, and, you know, maintained. So, because there's no room at the door, right, you've, you've got this image of Jesus in the house. There's the crowd who's gathered in the house. And now they're even flowing out the door so nobody can even get inside the house anymore. And notice what Jesus is doing. The end of verse 2. And he was preaching the word to them. We often see this in Mark's gospel. When you see crowds, they're typically... Uh, What Jesus Jesus is preaching to, he's preaching to the crowds, he's showing them compassion, okay? Uh, But we never see an example of crowds as a whole repenting and believing. We typically see them as a hindrance to that. So, verse 3. And they came. So now we've got some new people that have, that have come into the story. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So now we've got four men and their friend who's a paralytic. He's being carried on a bed. And they have heard, perhaps, all of the, the people spreading the fame of Jesus, what he's done in the synagogue. They've heard and they've known, this is the guy that we've got to go see. This is the one who... Perhaps we'll give our friend a chance to walk again. Perhaps can heal his his issues. And so they come. And verse 4. When they could not get near him because of the crowd... So again, here's Mark painting the crowd in a negative light. The crowd is preventing the man from getting to Jesus. They removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic... Lay. Now, this seems extreme to us. And I would have loved to be a fly on the wall in this house to see the expression on everybody's face as the, as the ceiling starts falling in on them. Now, just trying to picture this. Jesus is in the house teaching. And probably pieces of mud and, and straw and sticks are starting to fall as the people above are digging a hole in the roof. This would be a major distraction. Now, Mark doesn't record what the crowd would have said or or what was happening at this very moment when they started opening the roof, but we can assume it was probably similar to what the crowd said to Bartimaeus. What in the world are you doing? Think about the owner of the house. We don't know exactly who that was. They probably would have been freaking out. What are you doing to my house? Come on. You see, but the four men and the paralytic, they knew something. They knew that Jesus was not just any other man. And they knew that what they had heard meant Jesus could do something for their friend. They had heard about the fame of Jesus and how he had cast out this demon in the synagogue. Perhaps they've even heard of other things that he had had done. And they knew that if they were going to get their friend healed, they had to get to Jesus. And they were not going to allow a crowd to prevent that from happening. So, verse five, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. It's interesting, this phrase saw their faith, because when we talk about faith, we don't typically talk about it as something that's visible, something that you can see. Faith is is an invisible attribute. Right? We all say that we have faith in God and that's why we're here, but Myself or any of the other elders or or nobody in this church can actively look at you and see your faith. Now we can see what your faith leads you to do. And I think that's what's being referred to here. Because if you look at what happens, Mark gives us the detail... In verse 2, that there's no more room, not even at the door. Okay, so we have that detail. In verse 3, they bring the paralytic. In verse 4, they could not get near him because of the crowd. Right, so Mark is giving us all of these little details, reminding us that they can't get to Jesus. Right, there's not an easy avenue of approach to get to Jesus. But that doesn't stop them. And then in verse, uh, yeah, in verse 4, they go up. On the roof, they remove sections of the roof and they lower their friend down on the bed to get him to Jesus. You see, when I found myself in that situation where I knew I was in over my head, I knew that I needed the help of someone else. I knew that I was not going to be able to do this myself. And if I didn't get somebody else to help, I was going to be in a really bad situation. I got a cabinet off the wall. I got pieces of drywall that are cut out. I've got pipe that I don't know how to get in place. And it was just a big mess. You see, and the paralytic and his friends know that very same thing. You see, they knew that just because they couldn't walk through the door and talk to Jesus, that was not going to stop them because they knew if they didn't talk to Jesus, nothing would be healed. Nothing would be resolved. There would be no help. There would be no hope. I wonder if we think about Jesus in the same way. You know, we typically think about our problems as physical things that we, that we deal with. But there are often times where we deal with emotional problems, spiritual problems. That perhaps, may, maybe you're experiencing that tonight that there are things that weigh on your heart. You feel distant from God. You feel like you've let him down. You feel like you've turned away. You feel like you've sinned. You don't know how to get it right or you don't know how to repair relationships that have been broken. There are so many things that weigh on our hearts. And I wonder, who are you thinking? Or where are you turning to find healing for those things, to find help in those situations? Hopefully we know that Jesus is one we can turn to. Hopefully we know that Jesus will accept us. And verse 5 tells us that when Jesus saw their faith, now this could have meaning that that we're missing as well, right? Jesus has the ability to see whether we have faith or not. But Jesus saw the extent that they went to to get to him. And everybody else around them saw that too. And Jesus' response is to say, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, that's a bold proclamation. But he addresses him as son. This is what God refers to his children as, sons and daughters. Right? We are adopted by God, our Heavenly Father. This is an endearing term. I have two sons. And I don't call anyone else my son. That is a special, unique term that I use for my own sons. And I have one daughter, and that's a special, unique term that I use for my one daughter. I don't call anybody else or any other little kids my daughter. That's unique to me. And Jesus says to the paralytic man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if the story ends there, it's like, oh, that's so sweet. That's great. That's awesome. But it doesn't. So now in verse 6 we see some of the people who make up this crowd. Now remember, I've already told you a couple times that in Mark's gospel, typically the crowd is a hindrance for people coming to Jesus. So let's see what happens in verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there. All right. So if you're not familiar with what a scribe is, a scribe is a person who would have copied the law of God. Uh, typically, they were Pharisees, and they, their whole life was dedicated to copying uh, the law of God, the Bible, uh, all of these different things. So they would be very familiar with the Old Testament. They would be very familiar with the laws of God. They would be very religious people, okay? Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, so they're making up part of the crowd, okay? So now we know a little more about the crowd. There's some scribes there, and they were questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, interesting thing about what they say in their hearts. Notice they don't say this out loud. They're thinking this in their hearts. The last thing that they think, who can forgive sins but God alone? That is absolutely true. That is a true statement. God is the only one who can forgive sins. Good that they know that. It's good for you and me to know that. But before that, they say, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Now, to blaspheme means you are taking credit for something that only God can do. That would be blasphemy. Okay? Uh, This would be punishable by death in the Old Testament. You can go look back in Leviticus and in Numbers... ...there's uh, laws that God gives about blaspheming... ...and the penalty is being put to death. So this is a serious offense that they're accusing Jesus of. So verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit... ...that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them... So Jesus knows their thoughts and now responds by speaking... Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? So Jesus poses a question here. And he says, why do you question these things in your hearts? And then he asks them a simple question. He says, which is easier to say? Son, your sins are forgiven? Or rise, pick up your bed and walk? Now let's consider those two options. If Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven... Can anyone verify if that's true? Nobody in the crowd can verify if that actually happened. Nobody. But if Jesus says, okay, so let's say nobody can verify that. So if they just get up and leave with their friend, nobody knows if that actually happened. But if Jesus says, pick up your bed and walk, that can be verified. Because if he doesn't, then everybody's going to say, okay, Jesus, yeah, great authority you got there. But, if Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, without saying, pick up your bed and walk, and then he picks up his bed and walks, what can we infer from that? That his sins really are forgiven. So Jesus is posing the question to the scribes, these religious people, it would be easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven, and then have no way to verify it, or to say your sins are forgiven and to watch the man walk, pick up his bed, and leave. Because that is going to point to the reality of the spiritual situation, which Jesus says your, your sins are forgiven. And so he asked them that question. And then verse 10, he says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So this is the reason why he is saying what he's saying. He says, I want you to understand that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says, that's why I said, son, your sins are forgiven. Because by him standing up and picking up his bed and walking is going to confirm what I have said. You see, because Jesus is wanting people to understand that he is God. He wants people to understand that he has the authority to forgive sins because he is God. Let's remember, the the scribes were saying, who can forgive sins but God alone? And that is a correct statement. God is the only one who can forgive sins. But what Jesus wants them to understand is that he is God. Look back at chapter 1 real quick. The same story where Jesus casts out the demon, the unclean spirit... Verse 21 says, And when they came into Capernaum... ...and immediately on the Sabbath day... ...he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority... ...and not as their scribes. Jesus is teaching as one who has authority. And then we see him cast out the demon... And what do they respond with at the end? Verse 27. They were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. What did Jesus say to the scribes here? Um, Verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. You see, Mark is wanting us to see, as we're reading through the gospel, that Jesus, who just started his ministry... Remember, this is chapter 2. He just started. And Mark is wanting his readers to know that Jesus has authority. Jesus is not just this random guy who shows up on the scene... ...and has some good stories to tell and some good uh, illustrations to, to make his point... Jesus is teaching with authority. And Jesus is using his miracles, his casting out of demons, his healing of people who are uh, uh, paralyzed to show that he has authority. And not just authority over the physical, right? To heal all of our illnesses and to make everybody feel good all of the time. But he has authority to forgive sins. Look back at chapter 1 one more time. Verse 23, and immediately immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. Look at what he says. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's a demon who makes that proclamation. Have you come to destroy us? You see, they know what Jesus will do ultimately. They know that there will come a day where Jesus will destroy them. And they were asking, is that now? Because we know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's what the demon says. Now back to chapter 2. What do the scribes, the religious people of the day say? Verse 7. Why does he speak like that? He is blaspheming. Notice the contrast between... The demons, they have a correct understanding of who Jesus is. That doesn't make them believers. That doesn't make them forgiven of their sins, right? They're demons. And then you've got the religious people who think that they are in a right relationship with God and they don't understand who Jesus is. And I think there's so much danger of us being in that position as well. We may not like to hear that, but we have got to check our hearts every single day to make sure that we are believing who Jesus really is and that we are taking our, our sins and our issues to Him when we, when we realize they're there. Because I think so often we can be like the scribes. We love to be around and, and to hear people preach. and you know We love to be in the mix of all the religious activities that are going on. But in our hearts we're questioning, can God really do that? I know there have been times where we've seen people walk into the church and our first thought is, what are they doing here? They don't belong here. They're not a good church person. I know what they've done. See, our hearts are so easily geared towards being like the scribes, questioning in ourselves, who is he to forgive sins? But then in verse 11... Or the end of verse 10. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. It's seven o'clock in case y'all didn't know. See, what's really interesting about this, this passage it's just the way Jesus goes about all of it. You see, Jesus knows that there's this paralytic man and his four friends... ...and they've got faith. They believe that Jesus is able to do something. They believe that Jesus is able to heal. And so they go to an extreme measure to get to Jesus. And Jesus sees their faith and Jesus acts. He does something... He forgives the the paralytic man of his sins and clearly heals his physical condition as well. And then at the same time, he's got all of these religious people who are questioning in their hearts, who is he to say that he can forgive sins? And Jesus doesn't flip out on him. He doesn't lose his cool. He just simply says, what's easier to say? But what I want you to know is that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I could have said whatever I wanted to say, but what I want you to know, what I want you to leave here understanding is that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And that's what I want you to leave here tonight knowing, that Jesus forgives sins. You see, all of us are sinful. All of us have have things in our past that we are ashamed of, that hurt, that we wish we we could jettison or get rid of. But we can't, but we have to understand who Jesus is. He has authority to forgive sins, and he will. If we will come to him, if we will confess our sins, if we will lay them and expose them to him and confess them and repent, he will forgive us of our sins, and he wants you to know that. He wants you to be confident in that. So, whatever it is that's burdening us, whether it's sin, maybe, maybe we've got a certain sin issue in our heart that we've been trying to deal with, we've been trying to keep it secret, we're embarrassed, we don't want other people to know, we can take it to Jesus. No matter what issues we deal with, no matter what weights we carry, no matter what burdens are, are weighing our heart down, Jesus wants us to understand He is the one that we can take them to. He is gentle. He is gentle with the paralytic. He's gentle with the friends. He's even gentle with the religious person who thinks they know more than Jesus. Jesus will accept us, and Jesus will forgive us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that he has authority on earth to forgive sins. Lord, all of us are in the position of needing forgiveness. Every one of us. And God, we are thankful to hear the words of Jesus that he has the authority to forgive them. Lord, may we be quick to run to Jesus. May we always be ready to to seek him, knowing that he will accept us and forgive us. God, we thank you that Jesus is kind and lowly and compassionate towards us. Lord, I pray that as we continue on our week, a new week, that you'd remind us each and every day for us to seek after Jesus to trust him knowing that he will forgive us. And it's in his name we pray, amen.